to welcome to Crossing Face, where Christian and Muslim talk religion and politics. Really, multi-faith people talk about religion and politics. And then uh, Matthew Hawkins uh, is on hiatus. Uh, he went in for a heart checkup, and he two days later he was in open heart surgery, so he's recovering. Uh, there's some question of whether or not it was the heart surgery or my prayers that healed him. We don't know yet, but uh, I'm going to go on a little bit of both, but I think the prayers weighed heavier because Ishmali prayers are, are uh, weighed very, very heavy with uh, the almighty Allah and, and uh, God or whatever you're calling them these days. So our, my good friend, John Kiriakou, who's uh, going to sit with me and talk about the current unpleasantness in Afghanistan. Uh, as everyone knows, this is an issue near and dear to me. Uh, I, we've spent the last week going from uh, uh, facilitating visas to get to the airport to stay safe and stay alive. At least that's been my um, my uh, my journey this week. Uh, now we're moving from the tactical of uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, at the airport and in Kabul and Afghanistan to some of the policy in DC. Um, I'm presently in Washington, uh, engaging different agencies and the executive branch to try to give them some advice. Um, but we wanted to sit down and talk with my friend here because both operated in theater in S uh, Central and South Asia. And there's been a lot of experts uh, out there um, I don't claim to be, and I, I know that John doesn't claim to be an expert, but we do know a lot about the region. And I don't think there's anybody who's an expert in Afghanistan, uh, I would argue. The more you learn, the more you learn that you don't know. And it doesn't matter if you're from the region or you have Afghan blood. The, the, cha the, the challenge is, is that it's uh, such an amorphous environment, dynamic environment, um, but also there's uh, such a rich history uh, and also a rich amount of current events that lead to someone to uh, uh, the conclusion that there's so much that needs to be that needs to be said about it need, needs to be uh, noodled over, and it takes a team of people to do it. So, in this case, um, we're here to talk about the Taliban, and we're going to talk a little bit about the origins because John and I spoke a little bit earlier about how there's so much that's not known about the Taliban and their origins and their role in Afghanistan. Um, and uh, we thought that it would be appropriate for us to have this conversation. Welcome, John. Thank you. Good to be back with you. Yeah, it's always good to see your face, you know, so uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's one of these moments in time where we, we only seem to talk about the, the something yeah. that's current, new, and terrible. So, yes, that's every conversation we have. Yeah, so, um, but, uh, so, or is it the Taliban? I, I, I give you my 30 seconds that I usually tell people. I usually say, look, you have a, 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 the Mujahideen, the, after the, uh, the Soviet war, uh, as this, we supported the Mujahideen in the United States, as the Soviet war came to a close, the Mujahideen, Mujahideen was uh, essentially roving around the country, committing all kinds of acts, uh, criminal acts. Um, some of the first uh, issues that happened um, were uh, Mujahideen attacking civilians and raping girls and the Taliban started started to their profile started to increase as vigilantes someone that would hunt down Mujahideen fighters right and and bring them to justice which is street justice you know hang them high type stuff uh, and so as this struggle continued in the 90s the Taliban support grew and their numbers grew and eventually 
you had vigilantes that took over the seat of government. Uh, and I don't know how you would feel, but I'm a big comic book reader. So Batman, love him, but wouldn't want him to be the mayor of my town and wouldn't want him to be at the seat of government. And so that characterizes, at least from my perspective, the Taliban in, in Afghanistan, particularly in the 90s and heading towards the, the Afghan war. Um, and, and one consideration is that they, the, 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 the Taliban is, um, everybody talks about the Pakistani Taliban, is it's, it, they're largely the recruits are largely the population from the Pashtuns, which is, which, you know, they saddle the border between Afghanistan and, 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 and Pakistan. So, and this is, uh, goes back to my whole theory that 90% of the problems in the world are, are British made, you know, they have the British, you know, so that, that line, that border is from the Brits. But how, what's your perspective on the origins of the Taliban uh, up to, the, up to the, the Afghan war? And, and then maybe we can talk about their role uh, a, during, uh, after 9-11, and then we can get to some of the current events. Yeah, everything that you've said uh, is true. Uh, there's, there's even more background that to me is very interesting. And that is when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, it, it caused a refugee crisis. And many, many Afghan families crossed the border into Pakistan. They, they raised their children there. They had children there. And uh, many of those children were educated in madrasas, religious schools. Well, the Pakistani government was having a problem with, with Mujahideen um, pirating essentially trucks as they were crossing, as Pakistani trucks were crossing into Afghanistan on their way to Iran to sell goods. And so Benazir Bhutto was the pre prime minister of Pakistan at the time. She came up with this idea or her people came up with this idea that they would take students, Taliban, the plural of Talib student, uh, take Taliban out of the madrasas and have them ride along with these truck drivers to protect them, you know, just a, a Talib with an AK-47, to protect them as they, as they crossed Afghanistan to sell their goods in Iran. Riding shotgun. Riding shotgun, exactly. And it worked. And then somebody said, well, this, this program is working. Maybe it would be more effective, maybe it would be more cost-effective even, if instead of having them ride shotgun in the trucks, we just place them in, in villages along the highway. And so they did that. And as vigilantes, you know, now they're on the ground uh, bringing their own brand of law and order to these. Well, and they're armed. They're on the ground. They're and, armed. And, they and they're armed. They and they had popular support because they were all about law and order. And uh, the next thing you know, they begin to take over villages and then territories and then regions. Uh, we get into the late 1990s and they take the whole of Afghanistan. And that was the origin of the Taliban. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people don't know that, that they actually had popular support, that there was, uh, they were the party of law and order and in, in an era, in a, you know, in a post-Soviet uh, war-torn country uh, with, you know, a lot of armed militias floating around it was, it may have been a relevant time or relevant period for a group like this to, to take over or, or, or to establish order, even though their rigidness was there. And this is not a Taliban sympathetic sort of, no. sort of thing, 
but it, it, it was, they were, they, were, they were the entity for the time and they fulfilled a need. And there could have been uh, something else that was there. I mean, I, we, I talk a lot about policy in, in, in Afghanistan and maybe if we didn't draw down and, and leave in lock, stock and barrel, um, we could have figured out a path for the Mujahideen to uh, address the human rights issues and, present, and establish a seat of government and go from there because it was the this communists was, lasted three years, right? Three years after the yes, this was a big mistake that was made in Washington. That once the Soviets were were pushed out of Afghanistan, we just decided that our work was done there. And instead of financing things like schools or physical plant, you know, um, uh, sewage uh, processing facilities or electrical grids or whatever, we just went home yeah. and then figured that was the end of it. In fact, that wasn't the end of it. And you raised an important point that I want to. I want to talk about too. And that is the fact that the Taliban are not foreign interlopers. They're not occupiers. They're not an invasion force. They're Afghans. And so, so many Americans question, well, why didn't Afghans take up arms against the, uh, the Taliban? Well, because they're also Afghans. Right. And the, and people in, in villages were having a problem with crime. They were having a problem with piracy and with, Soviet troops and, you know, crimes against women, they welcomed that law and order. I think that's something that many Americans, most Americans don't understand. Well, also you have for thousands of years, you have these, what we call in the West informal systems, but they're very formal systems to Afghans, right? And in in theater. So, and and you were talking about border crossings. Generally, there was this, there's a tribe, there's a group called the Arbakai, right? And they would be in charge of all the border crossings. And it'd be one of these things where this tribe generated revenue from assuring, getting payment from people that were crossing the border. So, uh, and, and I, you're, you're familiar with the Arbakai, right? They, they okay. constantly informal systems, right? Sure. So if you didn't pay them, something probably would happen. They would get their payment one way or another as you were crossing the border and traveling down those passes, right? Those systems were in jeopardy or, or, um, were t- teetering after the Soviet rule, right? Um, and they were being reestablished, right? These tribes were reaffirming themselves and the revenues were, were slowly starting to, to build. And it was very mature up to 9-11. But then after the invasion, the Arbakai, uh, there, was, there was a, during the Karzai you know, regime, there was a lot of, uh, um, no people, nobody really understood the informal systems. But then on top of that, they started to establish border control like in the United States. And so these tribes became disenfranchised and didn't have the revenue source. And so what happened to these people? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that because that is a vacuum that the, the, the Taliban now has really carte blanche to fill. Yeah, see, this is another thing that Americans don't understand. These systems seem so primitive to us, but they worked. You know, it's like the Hawala system that so many people in the region use for banking or for transferring money. It works. We don't like it. We have a name for it. Walk through the Hawala Hawala system so so people understand. Sure. Uh, Hawala system is a way of of, uh, sending money where you either don't have access to banks or you don't trust banks. Let's say you need to send uh, $50 to your cousin, Mohammed, and Mohammed is in Dubai. So you go to the local Hawala, which might be in, you know, a bakery or the meat cutters uh, shop or wherever. And you say, I want to send $50 to my cousin Muhammad in Dubai. He'll take your $50. 
um, he'll give you a, I think it was a nine digit serial number. What I did, I sent myself $50 just right. to try it out from, uh, from Abu Dhabi to uh, Bethesda, Maryland was the nearest Hawala I could find. Uh, so he gives me a nine digit number. I email the number to my cousin, Mohammed. He takes the number into his local Hawala in Dubai, says, here's my, my nine digit number. And he gets $48 out of the $50. The $2 is for the transfer fee. It works. We call it money laundering, right. but for Afghans dealing with small amounts of money, it works. It's the same system that the Templars put together. That is the, the, exactly basis, the same thing. Yeah. The basis for our whole entire banking system. And, and in these places where you, you have, don't have the infrastructure, um, you know, how do you get money to your, your, <laughs> to yourself in Maryland, for example, right. you know? <laughs> so, uh, but the, 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 so these informal systems were existed. There were responsible parties for it. And now we're at a point where, and I don't know if we're going to, I guess we can jump through, right? We spent a tremendous amount of funds, training Afghan, the Afghan military, ANSAF, right? The Afghan uh, National Security Forces and train and establishing border, border, border patrols, border, a border guard and all these other things, formal systems from a Western perspective. Now all that's gone. Um, and the Taliban is stronger than ever. And maybe you can give a little bit of an assessment from your perspective of, you know, it's, a, it's you know, we have a short time here, but this summing up of, you know, we we train, we spent billions of dollars on this training, funding, and all this and and all this equipment and ordinance, but then and also in establishing these formal systems that should have, in in big air quotes, established um, a uh, a modality for the sustainability of this yeah. democratic government. Yes, but now um, all that has has failed, uh, and and we've seen the probably the most explicit example of a failure in state building. Uh, so what what is it from your perspective? Do you think is, you know, and is are are the the, the key areas that that you think uh, are leading to the Taliban strength because we're yes. this about Taliban and the holes that they're going to fill? Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think they're vast, right? There is no border guard anymore. So you know, I don't know what the Arbakai are up to these days, but maybe they're going to reestablish stuff. But border crossings are free now, and the Taliban's in complete control of it. So are Taliban mechanisms going to have more breadth and scope to them uh, than than they did back in the nineties? Uh, and do you think that um, that any of these systems, uh, informal systems, will reestablish themselves, or do you think it'll be a complete new uh, Taliban overlay? I think it's going to be a combination. First of all, um, boy, where do we even start with something like that? How do we? How did we get here? We we got here because of corruption and tribalism. Uh, I remember in 2012, uh, there was the there was a report in the New York Times. Uh, talking, I was going to say, when you say corruption and tribalism, is it on the U.S. side or is it on the Afghan side? On the Afghan government okay. side, yes. The the non-Taliban Afghan government side. Okay. Uh, there was a there was a story about DynCorp. DynCorp was charged with uh, with establishing and training a new national police force, the Afghan National Police, okay. and so they they set up this huge training facility. They brought Afghan, young Afghan men from all over the country, from all the different tribes and all the different regions. That was mistake number one. And what ended up happening one night, to make a long story short, is that one of the recruits poisoned a pot of stew that was being served for dinner that night. And he killed about a dozen 
fellow recruits. Well, that night, while the survivors were sleeping, he let four members of the Taliban into the dormitory that was being used for housing. And they went bed to bed and stabbed all the other recruits and killed them. So this was a story for a day or two days. But to me, it was, it was a, a glaring example of exactly what is wrong in this country, in, in Afghanistan, that, that the tribe was more important than the nation, yeah. that Hazaras, for example, weren't supposed to be working with Pashtun and Northerners working with Southerners. And it just wasn't going to work. And so, you know, when you hate your enemy more than you love your country, it's doomed to fail. Nothing will work yeah. if, if that's, you know, the prevailing the feeling, the prevailing belief. Right. And this is 2012. So 2012. This is 2012. So we were already 11 years into it. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it, it, so would you say, has that, ch- did that change up to now, you know, in the, in the, when it comes to the tribalism, what's your thoughts on that? No, I think tribalism has even strengthened in the intervening years. And I'll tell you what, I, for me personally, I don't really care who's, who leads Afghanistan. If it's the Taliban, well, you know what, it's the Taliban, but I worry about minorities in Afghanistan. I worry about Shia Muslims. I worry about the Hazaras specifically. Um, when I was in Afghanistan back in, I guess it was 2007, I met with a very senior Hazara leader and he made a point to me that was just so interesting. It stuck with me. He had a framed, he had a, he had a shadow box, quite a large shadow box mounted on the wall of his house. And in it were all of his judo belts from white to black, right? So every time he earned a new belt, he saved it and ended up putting from white to black. And and I complimented him and I said, you're a black belt in judo. And he said, I'm a fifth degree black belt. And I said, that's, that's really incredible. He said, I didn't do it for fun. I did it because Hazaras are forbidden from owning weapons in Afghanistan. He said, I'm a Shia Muslim. I'm an Afghan, like any other Afghan, and I'm forbidden from owning a weapon. He said, I had to have some way to protect myself. Yeah. Well, that was under the Afghan government, the one that's supposed to be democratic and, and supportive of human rights and being supported and financed by the United States. What's it going to be like under the Taliban for religious minorities like him? That yeah. really worries me. Yeah, religious and ethnic minorities, it's tough. I mean, I think that from my Af- from the Afghan perspective is that, you know, there's always been a system of collaboration, cooperation amongst the ethnic religious groups. You know, it's just like, it's like old school New York, you know, everybody has their neighborhood and, uh, you know, and, and, and it's like Lebanon before the civil war. Yeah. So it, it, it actually worked. It was tenuous, but it worked. And, you know, and everybody has their, you know, their, their, their mosque, their place of worship, their, you know, and everybody's doing this thing. And so, you know, I, I, when I was there in 2012 and I was at, in Herat and I was talking about the, uh, you know, how do, how do we instill a democracy? And of course the, 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 uh, the Ulama council was there, you know, and they were, they were, you know, they're all really close. It's about 45 minutes from the, from the, from the Iranian border. So, you know, they're all sitting there, you know, like this. And, and I just told them, I go, look, started off the conversation with you guys have been practicing democracy longer than, than, than just about anybody on the planet for thousands of years at the sure and jerk level, you know, the village level. Right. Yeah. And I said, the, you know, the problem is, is no two democracies are the same. And, uh, and I said, let me give you an example. 
British democracy, they have a House of Lords. In America, we would, it's, it's outrageous to us that you'd have a hereditary body that governs, right? Yeah, with like 2,000 people in it. Right, right. And they're all psychos. They're all sociopaths, you know? So, um, and, and so, but so an Afghan democracy or American democracy is very, very different than a, than a British democracy. So what is an Afghan democracy going to be? Right. And it's up to you to do that. And the, 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 the top guy, the elder, right, stands up and he says, you know, Yahya, you know, John, Yahya is right, you know, and, 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 uh, and he goes, we, we can develop our own democracy because we know what we're doing. Right. And that approach, I think, was unique for that moment. Um, it never I don't know if it, it, it didn't evolve in the halls of the U.S. government, certainly, but it was one of those moments in time where. I don't know if the Afghans really had the opportunity to develop their own democracy because it came from the top down. It was a Kabul-centric, uh, very, you know, consolidated federal system, it's highly centralized. You know, I always say that uh, the best system, if you're going to implement a federal system, it's like America before the Civil War. It's, you got, you know, you got to have the Uzbeks on the, in, the, in the Northwest. You got to have the Tajiks in the, in the Northeast. You got to have the Pashtuns in the South, Hazar somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, the Nuristanis, you know, they got to do their own thing because you know, that's why that, those, those are my brothers and sisters over there. You know, so, you know, you, you got to figure it out in, a, in the right way. Um, but th- it was really a top-down government during the Karzai era. It was very centralized. Um, and you know, he, Karzai was appointing uh, uh, mayors in towns and they were all flying into to, to Kabul and then flying back out. And, um, and the challenge I think now is that all those 20 years of ups, downs, lefts and rights, we have the dividend, what are the dividends? We, we have contractors that made a lot of cash. We have uh, the U.S. government that had that that implemented women's empowerment programming and and uh, and and a lot of different um, um, development initiatives, civil society initiatives. But now all that is 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 it for not because the Taliban now is in charge, and we know who they are and what they're about. Yeah, and and so I know we're we're limited time here, so I'm getting into the question of okay, are we dealing with a new Taliban? Okay, and and a more evolved Taliban. It appears so because issues. I, I think so. You know, I, I gave myself I, a little- this. This is a Taliban that has been meeting with the United States, officially or unofficially, for several years now. This is a Taliban that that ought to have learned its lessons from two thousand and two thousand one. They're not stupid people, right? They they've been in power and they've been out of power, and being in power is better. It's yeah. nicer. So I, I can't help but to think that this is not the Taliban that is going to rush to execute women in soccer stadiums or to stone people to death for listening to music or drag them behind jeeps uh, as punishment for, for some offense. I can't, that, it may come to that again someday, but the Taliban that we're looking at right now, I think has learned some lessons over the last 20 years. You know, there was an interesting uh, point that I I heard on one of the talk shows uh, yesterday morning saying that that something like 55% of the country was born after the 9-11 attacks. Right. And so that includes many members of the Taliban. Yeah. So perhaps they're not going to make the mistakes their fathers made. I I think we should wait and see how this plays out. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I, I you know, we hear all the, the, the reports of, of the Taliban and I'm, you know, I, I was patting myself on the back because we were trying to get people to the airport. And, and it was it was funny because, well, I don't know how funny it was, but that 
the U.S. passport holders, Afghan Americans with U.S. passports were, come, were coming to the airport and the Taliban was letting them in. Um, I had, I, and, and I, I had gotten two reports and I was talking to somebody and, and then Roy, Reuters says this thing that the Taliban has orders from the top to the down. It says foreigners, you know, spirit them to wherever the hell they're going. You know what I mean? And, and get them there safe, but do not attack them, which is, a, it's, it, there's, it demonstrates some of the sophistication, particularly out, uh, of, of the command and control that they have um, uh, over their, their people. But not only that, I mean, look at the sophistication in taking such territory in large part by not firing a shot, right? It's not like they, they, they put an army in the field oh. and they said, we're going to just, there was a front line that pushed. Um, I, my, I had reports that Taliban of, 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 of Talibs actually embracing Kabulis and saying, you know, it's so good to be back. And they were like, is he attacking me? Is he not attacking? And they were confused. What's going on now? That's not to say, like, I've got a lot of people that are in, you know, in hiding who are, you know, with American passports or this or, or, or were involved in U.S. U.S. programming and so forth. And my, you know, we're, like I said, we're limited time wise. I would, I, you know, what are you, what are your recos right now? If you were going to talk to the Taliban leadership, um, you know, because I would say, look, don't kill anybody. Right. Talk to the U.S. government, engage the U.S. government and, and, and just put a freeze on any kind of whatever it is you're thinking, don't do it. Yeah. All right. Right now, let's take it some time to freeze and establish some kind of, of communication so that the people that work with the United States, who we cherish um, and who they and, and they're Afghan citizens, they're Afghan people. They have um, the, the peace of mind to know that they have uh, um, are in a, a safe zone for now. Um, and we, if we need to get them out, we can get them out. But if, but we also need to establish some, some, some kind of criteria so that our national security is protected now that we have a new regime. So what's, what, what's your, what's your, you know, your bluff, your bottom line up front? I, I think it's twofold. Number one, we owe it to the people who worked with us over the last 20 years to get them and their families out. We need to, we need to ensure the safety of the people to whom we promised safety. Number one. Number two, we have to keep our line of communications with the Taliban open. As I said, we've been negotiating with them for a number of years, mostly in Doha. We need to keep those talks open, even if we don't immediately establish diplomatic relations with the Taliban. We have to at least be able to talk and to exchange messages. Number three, and I think this is the most important, is we need to work very, very closely with the Chinese on this. Because the Taliban and the Chinese have excellent relations. The Chinese have an exclusive contract to mine rare earth metals in Afghanistan that we know from a DOD report has a value of $1 trillion. So the Chinese have a vested interest in a stable long-term government in Afghanistan, even if that means a government headed by the Taliban. So if any country has any authority in Afghanistan right now, it's the Chinese and we need to engage with them to ensure the safety of people inside Afghanistan. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, right now, I think, you know, when you're not talking, it's a problem. And, you know, you know Iran is, is, is a perfect example of that. If you, that have, you have no idea what's going on because no That's one's right. directly engaging the Iranians. So if we can figure out, you know, so you think, you know, should we have a consulate in Kabul? Should we establish that right off the bat? What do you think? You know what? It would be 
very high risk, but I think at the same time, it could pe- potentially be high reward. So yeah, you know, we, we abandoned the U.S. Embassy. We're in the process of, of getting the last people out. We destroyed all the documents and all the equipment in the previous few days. But while we don't need this massive compound like we have now, yeah, I think we should have some sort of a diplomatic presence in Kabul. Yes. You know, I, I, a building with a desk, you know? Yeah, that's yeah. it. It's, it's all we need, you know, and because at least there's some kind of engagement in what's going on, and at least we can establish some kind of trust. I mean, it's the 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 the, the Trump government already recognized yes the Taliban, so it's so yeah. their their legitimacy is already there, and it doesn't matter even if you say they're illegitimate, they're there now. So if we're going to not let this slide into a Daesh ISIS situation with a and a peppering of Al Qaeda, we need to figure out how to maintain relations and say this is what's going on. And you're right; it is in the China's interest um, to keep a stable country. You know, it, you know, because they're, they have they're the rare earth elements, and and uh, and they have other interests there as well. And and hopefully, we have some interest. I mean, I, I helped set up the Ministry of Mines program with Midas. It's all gone, you know. I helped help do the ANP when they had six hundred generals retire. I helped set up the career path and the the, the masters in police and master master of public administration and policing and all this other stuff. And all that stuff's gone, you know. It's just it, it's 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 flabbergasting, you know, to to to, to really kind of comprehend. Um, but as my my heart's been breaking this past week, and we've been pivoting now to figuring out policy. You know, I think that your insights are, are appropriate and, and they, they're helpful because where, where are the, who are the Taliban, what are they about and where they're going? And we need to figure out as a country how we're going to fulfill our commitments to the Afghan people and to the American people. And, you know, that's security, that's, that's um, you know, celebrating our wins. But, you know, right now, while we're licking our wounds, we need to figure out, you know, how we're going to deliver on our promises and also pave a path for the future so john kiriaku i appreciate you taking the time thank you so much good to see you again yeah good to see you as well